0: Again, for our class, Faith in a World Without God, Uh, we began last week's session by talking about the fact that everybody sees reality through a lens of a world view. Everyone locates themselves in a broader storyline that seeks to explain life. And for Christians, our individual stories are meaningful in the context of Scripture's storyline. It's the Bible who tells us who God is, who we are, why we're here, what our problem is, and and what God has provided for us in Christ. And so we spent some time last week discussing the reliability of the Bible and, and the reasons we have to trust it as God's word. But as we've seen, the worldview of naturalism removes God from the picture. It presents to us a world without God. And it locates humanity in the natural world, in, in an uncreated, purposeless universe. Right? Christianity is a, a story of creation, fall, and redemption, but naturalism cuts off those first two chapters. Right? It, it removes creation, and it has no doctrine of the fall, but then it leaves itself without any resources to explain why life feels the way it does. It's unable to tell us why things go wrong or even what it would mean for them to be right. And so ultimately it fails to provide any redemptive purpose to our existence. Now, the problem is uh, that's not how naturalists tend to see their own worldview. They don't tend to live consistently with the views they claim to hold. Uh, In fact, they leave their worldview behind when they argue against God's existence. there's actually a theological reason behind this because Romans 1 tells us that everyone truly in their heart of hearts knows that God exists because they're made in his image. Even though they suppress the truth. Uh, But sometimes, you know, the the beach ball that's been pushed under the water can't help but pop up uh, every once in a while. And this happens, as we'll see in the category of objections we'll consider this morning, which have to do with God and evil. Right, the problem of evil has always been a challenge to theistic belief. How can a good and loving God allow so much pain and suffering to exist in this world? You know, how can you believe in God uh, when there are tsunamis and earthquakes, brain cancer and HIV, terrorism and sex trafficking? And so we'll spend some time thinking through what the reality of evil implies about the existence of God. Uh, But now among the new atheists in particular, there's also the specific claim that God of the Bible is himself evil. Not not just that evil in the world poses a problem for God's existence, but that God himself is a moral monster. I won't uh, read that quote again, but you'll remember the lovely mouthful of descriptions from Richard Dawkins about God being a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser and a misogynistic, genocidal, malevolent bully, and so on. Uh, And so the plan for this morning is to address the larger problem of does the presence of evil in the world pose a problem uh, for God's existence? Does it call it into question? And then we'll look at the specific issue posed by apparently immoral commandments. In other words, uh, does the God of the Bible do and command things that are evil and and the specific claims we'll consider are that the Bible promotes slavery and that God commanded the genocide of Israel's enemies. Alright so first the problem of evil. Of course evil is much more than just a logical deductive argument. It is a real experience that confronts us and that begs for explanation I love to talk philosophy as we'll do a little bit of that in in a moment Um, but I'm a pastor and I know the pain that people can experience and so evil must be taken seriously and it resists quick and easy answers. Last year I read uh, The Brothers Karmazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky and it's considered to be one of the greatest novels of all time and that's because Dostoevsky is a master of the human condition in all of its complexities and brokenness. And in one section, Ivan Karmazov is speaking with his brother, Alyosha, about why he doesn't believe in God. And he begins to describe the suffering of children. This is a difficult passage here. He says, People talk sometimes of bestial cruelty. But that's a great injustice and insult to the beasts. A beast can never be so cruel as a man, so artistically cruel. I've collected a great, great deal about Russian children, Alyosha. There was a little girl of five who was hated by her father and mother. This poor child of five was subjected to every possible torture by those cultivated parents. They beat her. Thrashed her, kicked her for no reason till her body was one bruise. Then they went to greater refinements of cruelty. Shut her up all night in the cold and frost in a privy because she didn't ask to be taken up at night. They smeared her face and filled her mouth with excrement. And it was her mother, her mother did this. And that mother could sleep. Hearing the poor child's groans, can you understand why a little creature who can't even understand what's done to her should beat her little aching heart with her tiny fist in that dark and the cold and weep her meek, unresentful tears to dear, kind God to protect her? Do you understand why this infamy must be and is permitted why the whole world of knowledge is not worth that child's prayer to dear, kind God. It's simply devastating. But what possible answer do you give to Ivan? Well, we'll return to this because even though uh, this problem is deeply felt and it requires uh, compassion, listening and care uh, more than cold, rational analysis, at the end of the day, It does need an answer. And the problem of evil has been formulated as a logical argument in an attempt to disprove God's existence. And by the way, uh, an atheist used to be considered somebody who believed that God doesn't exist. And maybe that's news to you. What do you mean used to? Isn't that what an atheist is today? But the, the new atheists have softened the claim to someone who's not convinced that god exists on the evidence it's common today for people to define atheism as just a a lack of belief in god in other words uh, atheists don't really have to prove anything they just happen to lack a belief in the existence of god but if that's what makes an atheist then rocks small kittens and gluten-free pizza are all atheists because they also i believe lack a belief in god Uh, but atheism is really the truth claim that there is no God. Uh, They've changed the language in order to lower the burden of proof, but the older atheists thought that they could prove that God doesn't exist, and one of the most powerful arguments they used was the problem of evil. And how do you prove that God doesn't exist? Uh, Well, you can prove that God doesn't exist if you can show that he's a logical impossibility, all right? So it's It's relatively easy to prove that square circles, uh, married bachelors, and tasteful mayonnaise don't exist because they are logical impossibilities. And so the argument from evil is the idea, it's that the idea of an omnipotent, omniscient, and good God is incoherent given the reality of evil in the world. It, It attempts to show that there is a logical incompatibility between the existence of God and the existence of evil. And the 18th century skeptic David Hume stated it like this. He said, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? So, that's how he poses the problem there. Now, the interesting thing is, even though this argument uh, still surfaces in intro to philosophy courses, you won't get by college experience without uh, interacting with this, professional philosophers of religion are pretty much unanimous in recognizing it as bankrupt. Right? With, the, with respect to the contention that evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of God, the atheist philosopher William Rowe writes, no one, I think has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. And the atheist Paul Draper says, I agree with most philosophers of religion that theists face no serious logical problem of evil. All right. So why the turn in the literature? Well, this is due uh, largely to the work of a Christian philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. And Plantinga points out that there's, there's actually no explicit contradiction between these two claims, right? God is omniscient, omnipotent, and good, and evil exists, right? You can look at those statements all day long, but they're not formally contradictory, even if people tend to have an intuitive sense that they're held in tension. But we can also demonstrate these concepts are not contradictory by adding an additional premise. Three, God has morally sufficient reasons for evil's present existence. If that third uh, sentence is true, then all contradiction vanishes. Of course, that's not just some response we made up for the occasion because we were so clever, right? That's a biblical teaching. That's part of the Christian worldview. But, But consider this, the way the argument's formulated, we don't even need to provide what that reason is. If it's even possible that God has a moral justification for evil in his plan, then the claim that the existence of God is incompatible with the existence of evil is without merit. So put another way, uh, what the objector must prove is that it's not possible that God could have a morally sufficient reason for evil in order to demonstrate that God is a logical impossibility. And That's why the vast majority of philosophers have abandoned the logical argument from evil and have moved uh, to what's called the evidential argument of evil, and that is that that the reality of the evil of all the evil in the world makes God's existence improbable or unlikely. Now, it's not just any kind of evil that's necessary to make this claim, but what's called gratuitous evil, unnecessary evil, evil that serves no redemptive purpose and has no moral justification. The mounting up of all these senseless evils in the world, it said, while not conclusively demonstrating uh, that there is no God, certainly calls his character into question, if not his existence altogether. But the problem with this again is, how would somebody be in the position of knowing that there is no morally good purpose for any particular instance of pain and suffering, right? given? our finitely limited understanding and perspective? Why assume that we would be able to take two looks at an event and conclude and instantly recognize uh, whether or not any evil could come from it, I mean, any good could come from it? In fact, we might agree with Ivan Karmazov that we see nothing good in the suffering of a little girl, but because we cannot see it, can we conclude that it is impossible for God to see it? But the key problem for the argument from evil in either form is that the atheist, the one who's arguing that against the existence of God, must assume that evil exists. And to do so, uh, they must have feet firmly planted in midair. Because this is, you know, if atheism is true, there really is no such thing as evil. And that's because on atheism, there are no objective moral values. And by objective, what we mean is true whether or not anyone else ever held to them. In other words, even if everybody believed that rape is okay, it would still be wrong, right? That's what we mean by objective. But in an atheistic world, what basis is there for universally binding laws about what's right or wrong? Now, ironically, Dawkins admits this. He says that our sense of morality is just a subjective disposition that's resulted from random evolution. In an interview with the radio host, Justin Browley, he's asked, when you make a value judgment, don't you immediately step yourself outside of this evolutionary process and say that the reason this is good is that's good? Dawkins, my value judgment itself, could come from my evolutionary past. Briarly. so therefore it's just as random, in a sense, as any product of evolution. Ultimately, your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six. Dawkins, you could say that, yeah. And so the atheist philosopher Michael Ruse describes morality as a collective illusion. And he says, whatever revulsion uh, we experience about things like human trafficking or the torturing of little children, it's just an evolutionary adaptation, like the gag reflex. In other words, just as you develop a gag reflex to keep you from choking, you've developed a moral revulsion to these events. Uh, now, let's, you know, we believe these are just particularly grumpy individuals. Uh, these conclusions are perfectly consistent with the worldview of naturalism. As C.S. Lewis has put it, if naturalism is true, then I ought is the same kind of statement as I itch, right? Naturalism can tell us what is the case. It can tell us dust makes people sneeze and humans happen to disapprove of stealing, but it cannot tell us what ought to be. It can tell you that a bullet shot into a human head will kill, but it can't tell you whether or not you should pull the trigger, right? Think about it as Bill Craig puts it, when a lion kills a zebra, it doesn't murder a zebra. You know, when a male shark forcibly copulates with a female shark, it doesn't commit rape. But then naturalism locates you and me in the natural world, apart without any fundamental distinction from a lion or a shark. We're part of the same evolutionary dance. And so even if there were an objective right and wrong, there's no reason to believe that human beings are morally valuable, that we can actually be the objects of injustice. So you know, even if we develop some sort of moral system and Sam Harris Uh, Does this, he has this basic criteria of we should do things that promote human flourishing, and then science can tell us what promotes human flourishing. And so he tries to get morality from science in that way. we, We can immediately ask, why? Why is human flourishing a good thing? Why does it really matter in the end? You know, we're just a doomed race in a dying universe anyway. This is how Bill Nye, the science guy, gives us a warm and fuzzy picture of our existence. He says, I'm insignificant. I am just another speck of sand. And the earth really in the cosmic scheme of things is another speck. And the sun an unremarkable star. And the galaxy is a speck. I'm a speck on a speck, orbiting a speck, among other specks, among still other specks, in the middle of specklessness. I suck. Uh, Well, Bill Nye's self-esteem issues aside, it it doesn't really make much sense to talk about the right or wrong way to treat a speck, right? In fact, on atheism, it really makes no difference whether we ever existed. And 20th century existentialist culture uh, was trying to grapple with uh, this idea, and Samuel Beckett had a play titled Waiting for Godot, and in it, uh, two men carry on this trivial conversation waiting for a third guy to arrive who never does by the end of the play. And, and Beckett is saying that our lives are like that. We're just killing time while we're waiting for something that will never come. And he, he wrote another play where the, the curtain opens to reveal a stage that was littered with junk. And for 30 long seconds, the audience just sits and stares at that junk, and then the curtain closes, and that's the end of the play. (laughs) I think I would want my money back, right? But if there's no God and no immortality, then that's what your life is. 30 seconds of nothing while spinning on a rock in a vast and immeasurable space, a tiny vapor of time among billions of years while the universe heads toward its destruction. To talk about right and wrong, justice and injustice, or even the supposed noble pursuit of truth at all costs is utterly meaningless in such a view of the world. You know, to seek... Human flourishing or even to try to save the planet from global warming is like rearranging the deck furniture on the Titanic just before it sinks. On atheism, there are no objective moral values and neither are there objective moral duties. Even if there were a right and a wrong, to whom would we be accountable? What duty would there be to follow what is good? Why not just be bad? You know, uh, ironically, Ivan tells his brother Alyosha elsewhere in the novel that if there is no God, then all things are permitted. And so that's all he can say at the end of the day to that little girl. And atheist ethicists agree. Richard Taylor writes, the concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. The words remain, but their meaning is gone. And so... Surely, you know, there there might be a social expectation to act morally, but there's also a social expectation not to wear socks with sandals. Being immoral becomes no more significant than being unfashionable. You know, it may not get you far in life to live like a jerk, but if it benefits you and you can get away with it, why not? But of course, something inside of us tells us that this isn't true some things really are wrong objectively and universally racism is wrong child abuse is wrong sex trafficking is wrong we we know in our hearts that objective moral laws do exist because we're made in the image Of God. And that's why even atheists can't help but make moral judgments about things. The suppressed beach ball of God's moral universe pops out of the water. You see, the problem of evil is actually a self defeating argument. Because in asserting that evil exists, it must falsify atheism. It must sit on God's lap in order to slap him in the face. And so far from being an argument against his existence, the category of evil must presuppose God's existence. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Well, he was comparing it with the nature and, ca- and character of God, which all people know because they're made in his image. So Christianity takes evil seriously. It has an explanation for evil, both its origins in the fall and its continuing presence due to sin. And it reveals the goodness of God in contrast to the evil that grieves him. And, and it teaches that God has a wise purpose for evil's present existence and that he will remove all evil in the end he will judge it in the end there is a resolution to the Christian storyline in which every wrong is made right and every sad thing becomes untrue and so Christians are not in a position of being able to claim that they know the reason behind any particular instance of suffering you know we don't want to become like Job's friends And offer our simplistic explanations for someone's pain. Uh, We don't want to pretend like the relationship between evil and God's loving designs is always without mystery. But what we do is we direct people toward the character of God. Who can be trusted and the truth he's revealed. And Christianity has a solution to the problem of evil where it matters most. Which is personal evil. Evil is not just something out there, right? It's inside of all of us. And we know this in our our moments of sanity and honesty. We know we don't measure up. We're the problem here, right? It said that G.K. Chesterton responded to the London Times question that they posed to a few different authors uh, asking, what's wrong with the world? And this was the essay that he submitted. Dear sir... I am. End of paper. Uh, We are the problem of evil. And the ultimate solution to the problem of evil inside of us is the gospel. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has entered our world of suffering and taken our evil upon himself. Jesus, the innocent one who did nothing wrong, received our wrongs so that we could be forgiven. I've I've heard it said, you know, R.C. Sproul, I think, has said that. uh, What about all the innocent people in the world who suffer? And he says, there's only ever one person who did that, and he did it voluntarily. My wife had the privilege of meeting the Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel. And in his book, Night, there's this gripping account of when the SS hanged a young boy uh, while the rest of the camp had to watch, and he was hanged along with two other men who died quickly, but his throes lasted for half an hour. And Wiesel said that someone behind him asked, where is God now? And he said, I heard a voice inside of me answer, where is he? He's here. He's hanging on the gallows. I think that Wiesel meant that this senseless suffering represented the death of God. But I'm not sure he realized how true his statement was. God was there, hanging on the gallows. In Christ, he has experienced every pain. Right? In, in the words of Jürgen Moltmann, he is the crucified God. He, he knows our suffering, and he has suffered for our sin. And so we can trust him, believe in him, and receive the solution to our deepest problem. Well, the new atheists have moved the emphasis away from the matter of evil in the world to the evil of religion and God himself. Religion is said to poison everything and to be the source of all that is wrong with the world. Uh, God, as presented in scripture, is a moral monster who commands people to do reprehensible things. You know, in a sermon last week, Pastor Keith took issue with Christopher Hitchens on some points related to this. Let's look at something else. He says, he says, "'The Bible may, indeed does, contain a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre, but we are not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human animals.'" Well, apparently we don't need to take Mr. Hitchens seriously either, since his own worldview designates him as a crude human animal as well. Uh, But Hitchens' criticism of the Bible, it rests on two assumptions. One, that the Bible actually teaches and promotes the things he listed, and two, that those things are wrong. (laughs) But in an atheistic worldview, there's, as we've seen, there's no basis for saying that ethnic cleansing or indiscriminate massacre are actually wrong so their moral denunciation of the bible rings hollow hitchens stands from a supposed ethical high ground from which he critiques the god of the bible but when we look beneath his feet we realize that there's nothing there but is his assessment of the bible on these things accurate well let's take a look at two of the claims here first that god commanded genocide And what's being alluded to here is Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan and God's commandment to drive out the enemy nations sometimes with the language of utterly destroying them and leaving no one alive, right? So this is stated strongly in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. In the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God commanded. Right, so that's certainly striking language, and maybe these are the parts of the Bible that we tend to read over quickly on our way to the Psalms or the New Testament. But is this genocide? What is Genocide? It's the unjust killing of an entire ethnic group. And on this definition, Israel's wars with the Canaanites don't meet any of these criteria. They weren't unjust. They weren't ethnically motivated. And the biblical text seems to indicate that they weren't applied to the entire population, but just to military and religious strongholds. And so we'll take a look at each of these, first in the category of justice, If you're going to step inside of the Christian worldview, we've seen atheism on its own foundation uh, can't argue that God is doing something wrong here. But what about on on Christian assumptions? Well, the the Christian worldview is a God-centered worldview. And when you step inside the biblical understanding of reality with both feet, God is the standard of justice And he always acts consistently with his own righteous nature. But this means that God is the one who informs us of what's right and wrong. We don't first start with our independent moral intuitions and then grade the God of the Bible by those criteria. In fact, our moral intuitions are themselves fallen and broken. But on Christian assumptions, what would make these commandments unjust? Well, they would be unjust if God were not God, uh, if he were taking something that didn't already belong to him. And if he were punishing people who didn't deserve it. But certain biblical conv- convictions inform us that this clearly isn't the case. Such as the fact that life is a gift from God. Every breath has been donated by him. The fact that we live it all is just the benefit of his goodness. And when he decides to take back that gift, he wrongs no one. Death is the wages of sin. God tells Adam and Eve, when they eat of the fruit, they will surely die. Paul writes in Romans 1.32 that we all know that God's righteous decree says that those who practice such things deserve to die, which means that every moment that doesn't happen to us is a moment of mercy, and God is the possessor of the earth. No surface of this planet ultimately belongs to any people or nation. Everything belongs to God. And he determined to give the land of Canaan to Israel. He placed the deed in Abraham's hand 400 years prior to this, which means that the the Canaanites are really enemy occupants in the land that rightfully belongs to Israel. And so already the idea that God can be charged with wrongdoing here falls apart. But there are additional details that should inform us about this. This was about capital punishment, not ethnic cleansing The killing of the Canaanites was not racially motivated. You won't find that idea presented anywhere in the text. As Peter likes to put it, the issue was not skin, but sin. And the Canaanite culture had become so corrupt that it warranted destruction. And so God accomplishes two goals at once here. He brings judgment on the Canaanites because of their wickedness. And he provides land for his people. They happen at the same time, but for distinct reasons. Okay, So we're never told that the Canaanites are killed so that Israel could have their land. They're killed because they had practices and actions that warranted capital punishment, as the statutes and the rest of the Mosaic law make clear. In fact, God is so concerned about exact justice that he tells Abraham that he's going to let his people suffer in Egypt for 400 years while waiting for the the full iniquity of the Amorites to be complete. And his interaction with Abraham over Sodom and Gomorrah illustrates this care. He would not destroy the city if even 10 righteous people were there. But evidently, uh, the city didn't even have 10 people who didn't participate in its wickedness. And whenever the Old Testament provides commentary on God's judgment on these nations... It's always their sins and their crimes that are in view, not their ethnicity. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, "...when you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens and so on." And because of these abominations, why? Because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And, and texts that have survived from the ancient Near East confirm this. You become like what you worship. That's a principle we see in, in Scripture. And the Canaanites worshipped a pantheon of gods who, according to their uh, mythic traditions, they committed incest, bestiality, pederasty and murder and so it's not surprising that these practices were integral to Canaanite culture and worship you know the underworld deity uh, Moloch was represented as an upright uh, bull-headed idol uh, with a human body in whose stomach a fire was stoked and in whose outstretched arms a child as old as four was placed to be burned alive does anyone want to seriously plead the case of the poor Moloch worshipers? A God who lets such practices pass by without judgment would be a moral monster. The God who puts an end to them, all his ways are right and true. In fact, God emphasizes that it's not because Israel is so good that they're getting this land, but because the Canaanites are so bad. You can look at Deuteronomy 9 later, and God tells Israel that they would, if they follow in the practices of these nations... They'll experience the same fate. T.D. Alexander writes The Israelites are to purge the land of anything that might cause them to sin against God. This, however, ought not to be interpreted as being directed only against the foreign nations living in Canaan. The same attitude was to be adopted toward fellow Israelites. It's noteworthy that the book of Joshua gives special attention to those non Israelites who do not come under the harem or the ban. For assisting the Israelite spies to escape from Jericho, Rahab and her family are rescued when the city and its inhabitants are destroyed. Interestingly, the book of Joshua contrasts the non-destruction of these groups with the destruction that befalls the Israelite family of Achan. We should not lose sight of the fact that the Israelites themselves eventually suffer a similar fate at the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians. So Yahweh can hardly be accused of adopting Double standards. So, so much for Christopher Hitchens' charge of ethnic cleansing. What about indiscriminate massacre? Well, as we've seen uh, before God, no one is innocent. Ultimately, everyone deserves death, and sin is indiscriminate. But as you look at the language of these orders from the Lord, the, the primary burden seems to be driving the nations from the land. And not exterminating them no matter what. So, the language of thrusting out and dispossessing them of the land is repeated throughout these accounts. And in fact, some people uh, chose to flee before Israel because they had heard of Yahweh's reputation in the Exodus. And the Israelites are never commanded to go and hunt them down, it's those who remain to fight and oppose. Israel that calls for military action. And the target of the occupation campaign seems to be not general non-combatant cities, but military and religious strongholds. Richard Hess points out that the term translated as cities in these accounts is not referring to major urban centers, but to forts that house the military and governmental officials. And this is confirmed by archaeology. It's also important to note that the, the number of the battles that Israel engaged in were defensive in nature they were responding to an attack that was on them or on one of their allies and so they had to fight or face extinction what about the texts that describe Israel as utterly destroying the people uh, from man to woman well it's important to recognize that the Bible is written in human language representing a particular culture and and place, and it makes use of conventional human speech. Every word in the Bible is God's word, but every word in the Bible is a human word as well. And as we pointed out in our How to Read the Bible class that we did last uh, year, the Bible makes use of things like idioms and hyperbole. Right When Luke writes that Caesar Augustus had all of the world To be registered, do we think that he means North America as well? Uh, This doesn't mean that we shouldn't read the Bible literally. It means that to read the Bible literally means to recognize the kind of literature that it is and to seek to discern the intent of the human author as best as we can. And and the Bible was written in the everyday language of the time. And when you compare this with the military and conquest literature from other texts, in the ancient Near East, you you see a common victory rhetoric of complete destruction and leaving no survivors, which is simply meant that they defeated the opposing army, right? We do the same thing when we say that the New Orleans Saints slaughtered the Atlanta Falcons, uh, which unfortunately didn't happen last year. In fact, there's evidence from the biblical text itself that this is how it intends us to read these descriptions, right? So, for example, take the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a constant thorn in Israel's side since day one uh, when they opposed them after crossing the Red Sea. In 1 Samuel 15, we're told that Israel utterly destroyed the Amalekites and spared no one. But then in 1 Samuel 27, David and his band went out and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. How does that work? But, you know, lest we think that that puts an end to them, they appear in 1 Samuel 30 and make a raid on Israel. All right, so is the author hopelessly confused here? Or is this cluing us in on how he intends for us to interpret the language that he's using? All right, similarly, the phrases such as from man to woman or everything that breathes, they seem to be idioms that just simply mean everyone there without any specific comment on who was there. They're just stereotypical phrases for describing all the inhabitants of an area without predisposing the reader to assume anything in particular about their ages and genders. So that's all to say uh, that there's nothing about these descriptions in and of themselves that require us to conclude that women and children were the targets here. And as you look at the narratives uh, of, of the battles that are fought, the data goes in the other direction as well. So all these things collected together, I think we can we can see that the claim that God commanded genocide of uh, an indiscriminate ethnic cleansing is simply unsupported by the text. All right, finally, what about slavery in the Bible? He says that the Bible contains a warrant for human trafficking and slavery. Well, actually kidnapping people for the slave trade was a capital offense. Exodus 21:16. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. And that's not surprising, uh, given Israel's own experience of slavery in Egypt. But we do find texts in the Old Testament law that regulate slavery. So what should we make of these? Well, first, there are are a couple of distinctions to keep in mind when reading the Bible. Uh, One is that there's a difference between what the Bible reports and what the Bible promotes. You know, so sometimes people uh, read something like Lot's daughter's attempts to get pregnant by him and then they come away criticizing the Bible as a morally crude book, as if it's presenting that story as a good thing. As th- you know, this is a pattern that families should follow. It's just telling you what happened. And in fact, the narrative itself goes out of its way uh, to illustrate the depravity of the circumstances. And there's a difference between the conditions that the law addresses and what is God's moral ideal, right? So much of the Old Testament law is case law. It starts with the formula, if someone commits adultery or if an individual commits manslaughter and then it addresses what should be done in response. But the point of those is not to say that adultery and manslaughter are just fine, right? It's it's just addressing how the civil law should handle these situations. In fact, Jesus says that the law regulated divorce due to the people's hardness of heart, but was in no way approving of divorce. So sometimes the law is just dealing with life in a fallen society. Now that being said, I think we should take a closer look at at what is meant by slavery in the Mosaic Law. Uh, because for most people, we read these passages and our mental association is chattel slavery in pre-Civil War America. Uh, but we first need to seek to understand what the text is actually saying. Hebrew slavery in Egypt, and we were looking at this as we we're studying through Exodus on Sunday mornings, Right? it was involuntary, it was racially based, and there was no way out of it. And that's also a fair description of most antebellum slavery as well. But slavery in Israel was voluntary. It was economically based and it was for a limited duration. It would be more along the lines of indentured servitude in our colonial history. And so some scholars have argued that even translating the term as slaves rather than servants is misleading. Hebrew slaves were more like contracted live-in employees. Right, poverty, uh, like it, it is today in many places, was a life-threatening condition in the ancient world. And if somebody found that he couldn't feed his family or pay off his debts, he could sell himself into slavery and live off of somebody else's land and provision while working for his master for a period of time. And his contract could then be paid off by a family member if they found the, the means to do that or he would simply complete the remaining years of his contract. Look at how it's stated in Leviticus 25, verse 47. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him. Or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. And and slaves served as debt servants for six years. If they could pay off their debt sooner, they could purchase their freedom. But in any case, the law stipulated in Leviticus twenty nine that every seventh year they would be released and all debts would be forgiven. And when he was freed from his servant obligations, he had the status of full citizenship. Now, this might not be an ideal work arrangement. I don't know how many of us are signing up for this today. but, But is the Old Testament law doing something immoral by seeking to set some parameters for this practice in a way that would be just for the people involved? In fact, a good deal of Mosaic legislation sought to prevent debt servitude from happening. Special provisions were made for the poor, such as opportunities to glean from the fields or to freely pick fruit that was supposed to be left behind for them after the harvest, right? That was a law in Israel. Don't pick everything from the land and hoard it for yourself. Leave food behind. Let the poor come and gather it in so that they may freely eat. And, and there are many other texts that we probably should address related to this. I don't have the time uh, to do that. You can check the recommended resource in your notes if you want to see those Discussed. What about slavery in the New Testament? Well, unlike the Old Testament context, Greco Roman slavery was a form of chattel slavery. And and while the experience was varied, the conditions for some slaves were downright horrible. And yet, you won't find in Jesus' teaching or Paul's writings uh, a, a call for a revolution to end slavery. So, is this a moral capitulation on their part? Well, imagine the conditions of the first century church. Christianity is a new movement. It's held in suspicion by both Jewish and Roman authorities. Would it really help the cause of the gospel to start distributing pamphlets calling for slaves to throw off their chains or for all masters to free their slaves? So Paul calls for faithful service on the part of slaves and for godly treatment, on the part of masters holding them to the high standards of Christian ethics. And he tells slaves that they should seek their freedom where possible. But does Christianity need to overthrow Roman society in order to be faithful? Christianity holds that it's the gospel that transforms society and not an imposed moral revolution as the hearts of the people are transformed, the structures of the society change as well. And that's what happened in history. That's what happened in Roman society. That's what happened in the United States. Slavery is ultimately in conflict with the gospel of freedom. And it's as people's hearts are transformed by the gospel that these conditions are no longer seen to be consistent with that. So uh, that comes to our conclusion of this morning, of looking at some issues related to evil and the God of The Bible, um, obviously, like I said last week, in order to be firm in our faith in these things, uh, we need to read the Bible. We need to know it. We need to know it more than just the the soundbite and proof text that people say. And so you need to be reading through these passages, but ultimately you you need to know God, right? You need to know his character. You need to know something of his goodness that protects you in the day that you're called to question it. So thank you so much for your... Attendance and attention. Uh, Next week, we'll look at the topic of Does Science Disprove Christianity? You guys have a good day.